This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one. In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash Travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Amman, Jordan, the capital of Jordan at the Fairmont for the annual, maybe the first annual, but maybe the second annual, Resilience Through Tourism Summit. Uh, my first guest is a friend, has the uh, distinct title, Your Excellency, welcome. Thank you. As being the Minister of Tourism of Jordan, Thank you. Uh, Lena Anab, how are you? I'm doing great, thank you. You know, you and I have known each other for a while. I've been coming to Jordan for 40 years. Yes. Uh, do you find it interesting that, that Jordan would be the site of the first Resilience Through Tourism Summit? Uh, not really, because uh, when we think of Jordan, as I was saying this morning, whether we talk about modern times or, uh, or from ancient times, Jordan has really stood the test of time in terms of the number of civilizations that have lived in, 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 uh, on this land. Our ability to adapt to change, our ability ability to adapt to varying uh, circumstances that might that some might find challenging but we have uh, been able to weather every storm that we have been faced with so in a way in a way we are
are I, I wouldn't say we're resilient this is this is it's it's, it's a it's, way of life it's almost. a way of life it's 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 how we are and uh, I think we have uh, we have uh, the foundation to be able to adapt to whatever changes or to whatever challenges that we are faced with and there have been so many I mean you know I go back to the very first time I came to Jordan my friends who I think are intelligent and well educated when I told them I was coming what they said to me 40 years ago is what they said to me four days ago be careful they yeah. still don't get it uh, I think uh, now with the with the uh, uh, media showing uh, giving us now be careful you're talking to the media ab- absolutely uh, we, 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 well actually I was paying you a compliment oh, okay. it is then you uh, can please keep talking I, I, <laughs> it's, it's, I think the media now has uh, has given us um, a much bigger exposure on what the world looks like and what we might think uh, is, uh, is is privy to this area we're finding out that this is the new normal that the entire world is living in uh, I, without mentioning any names you can be in Europe and it could be just as unstable if you like or unpredictable as anywhere else in the world I don't think it is something it, I think it's a matter of deconstructing and working on the preconceptions and stereotypes about this area and to start telling our story the way it is start showing and showcasing what this country has to offer without having to always be on the defensive and uh, without having to justify whether we are safe or not I think we have established that uh, long ago it is time for us to start uh, um, uh, for people to start enjoying the country for what it is and to um, know to, to be sure that that uh, uh, there is a, li- a lot of exaggeration when it comes to uh, uh, describing or to talking about our country or about Jordan in particular. I should tell you that every time I brought friends here, I had to drag them kicking and screaming to come, and within 24 hours, they wanted to extend their trip. Absolutely, and we find this all the time. It's uh, it's we we uh, uh, the beauty of it is that we exceed people's expectations. So in a that's way, that's a good place to be. Uh, ab- absolutely. So in a way, in a way, it's good maybe not to uh, have uh, uh, to be a little bit on the watch out. But once people get here and once they experience the places, and more importantly, experience uh, us as people to see uh, to uh, uh, spend time with Jordanians to see how they are. And as I was saying, we really uh, the sense of hospitality is quite innate it's in us it's in our dna and um, uh, you, i always love to say this uh, you know we're very proud of uh, petra it's 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 such an amazing site but uh, there's so many other places uh, too. of course there's the, uh, uh, jordan has hundred thousand uh, archaeological sites so in terms of history in terms of archaeology we are we're quite rich uh, and we are also quite unique in so many areas uh, in the world um, so so as far as that wealth of 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 uh, uh, product offering, we have it. But as I was saying, people come to our great uh, uh, sites, but when they leave, they, the, the first thing they talk about is the people. The first thing they talk about, their experience, the fun uh, that they have with the Jordanians, uh, the hospitality with which they are received. And and to me, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, if I were to be asked what is our most uh, um, uh, treasure, uh, most uh, uh, precious uh, treasure in Jordan, um, I would really say the people and then everything else comes next. What's interesting, of course, is, and I say this as an embarrassed American, our, ge- our own geographical ignorance about the region. Uh, people can't even, port to, can't even you know, point to Indiana on the map. How are they going to find Jordan? And yet, when they get here and they realize how close the distances are, yeah. That they can see, you know, it's an hour flight to Cairo. It's it's a 40-minute flight to Beirut. It's a 40-minute drive to Israel. 
mm. right, from where we are right now. Yeah. You, you're, you're at the border. Then they begin to open their eyes and go, maybe I'll go there, maybe I'll go there. And all of a sudden, even if they wanted to see Israel first, they might go through Jordan. Absolutely. It's, uh, uh, I think the size of the country is a big advantage uh, because you could experience uh, the diversity of Jordan is, is tremendous. So what a visitor can experience by only staying in Jordan is, is tremendous. But also, as you said, the proximity to other wonderful uh, 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 places uh, is also a big plus because uh, this could add, this could enrich uh, the experience of uh, and the trip of, of anybody who's visiting, especially for those who are taking long haul uh, uh, trips exactly. where, where it makes perfect sense for, for them to combine their visits uh, to the area. We have been encouraging that uh, quite a bit. Uh, we think it, 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 it only makes sense for visitors who come here, uh, not only to experience the, the beauty of Jordan, but also to uh, venture in, in, in other uh, countries as well, because uh, uh, this area um, um, as a whole is, is one of the most fascinating areas in the world. And I think it, it only makes sense to maximize uh, whatever people can do or, or, or whatever activities they can do while they're here. I'll tell you a little secret. This precedes <laughs> your arrival as the Minister of Tourism, but many years ago, a very smart, very entrepreneurial Jordanian figured out that all the Americans who wanted to go to Israel, they could actually underprice them and have them come to Jordan first. So Royal Jordanian was offering bargain fares to come to Jordan and then go to Israel. It drove the Israelis nuts, but what the Israelis didn't realize, that's how a lot of Americans got to Israel because Jordan put them on sale. Yeah. They actually came to Jordan first and then went to Israel, but then came back and flew back on Royal Jordanian. So El Al wasn't happy, everybody else was. I'm joined now by an old friend of mine and a perfect time for, him, for me to see him in Jordan. I never see him in Jordan. I see him in Buenos Aires and Macau and, and uh, uh, everywhere else but Jordan. But he is Jordanian. In fact, he and I first met in Jordan, uh, former Minister of Tourism, then the Secretary General of the United Nations World Tourism Organization, and now a free man. <laughs> who is basically not free at all because his advice is sought by everybody when it comes to travel and tourism, the Honorable Dr. Talib Rafai. How are you, sir? Uh, you know, here we are. I feel we've come full circle, Talib, because 20 years ago, when I was here for the first conference, on, and then it was called Peace Through Tourism, um, which then led to doing the royal tour with His Majesty King Abdullah, um, you know, Jordan was going through a tough time then. You had the Intifada. You had uh, big problems in the, in the region. Not surprisingly, you have big problems now in the region. And of course, everyone was saying to me, oh, well, don't go to Jordan. It's not safe. And of course, I came to Jordan and it was perfectly safe. Um, Jordan sort of suffers because of where it's located, only because if there's a problem in the West Bank or if there's a problem in Israel, or there's a problem in Syria or any of your neighbors, it affects you directly. You know, we have the minister of Jamaica here with us. He was saying we're surrounded by an ocean. I say, and we're surrounded here by a political situation. It's exactly the same thing. The point is this. We have learned how to survive. We have learned how to stay with our heads up high above the water in all of these circumstances. That's why the, the holding of this meeting today here in Jordan is very significant, not just because it is the timing and the place, 
the subject matter is very relevant to what we do in this region, what we do in life. And, you know, it's not going to go away. It's a matter of how you adjust. No, it will never go away. If it's not one thing, it's another. This is, this is, this is how it is. You, you can't just avoid risks. You have to take the risk, you have to manage it, you have to live with it, and you have to make the best out of it. You know, when you take a look at those sheer numbers, not just the size and the geography, but the numbers that we're talking about, the fourth largest city in Jordan right now is Syrian refugees. That's right. That is right. It's our destiny, but we have to do it because we are also very responsible human beings after all. Now, let me just make a quick comment, if you don't mind, on what you started in your introduction. Yeah. By the year 2000 and now, 18 years ago when we first met here, the situation was not better at all. But the spirit, the atmosphere, the environment was more positive. People were still very optimistic. By the new king taking the realm, we had uh, a peace treaty that was signed. It was a bit more forward-looking. Today, unfortunately, not only do we have a bad situation, we don't have a positive outlook towards the future. I'm not talking about Jordan, I'm talking about the region altogether. What we have seen in the last four or five years with the Arab Spring has turned everything upside down in this region. That is the problem that we have now. It's a problem of perception, state of mind. Well, let's talk about that from the point of view of tourism, because somebody listening to this to this program, listening to me, and especially listening to you, might say, okay, based on what Talib just said, I'm not going. Oh, to the contrary. This is the time to come and see what's happening on the ground. This is the time to come and experience firsthand. You know, in our region here, we're used to these things. And the travelers of today are willing to take more risks than ever. Not that you take risks when you come here to Jordan, but come and see it while it's happening. This is history in the making now. That's what I'm saying. Right, and, and the fact is, uh, the conversation is ongoing. And it will continue to be the case. When people come to Jordan, people who are visiting you, for example, you mentioned the Minister of Tourism for Jamaica, my good friend Mr. Bartlett. This is his first trip to Jordan. What's the biggest surprise for him coming to Jordan? Oh, he did not expect to see whatever he saw. He said all my stereotypes, all my perception was shattered when I came to Jordan. He, w- he came through an airport, so modern, received with a smile, came to a hotel that's so sophisticated, so well-designed, well-serviced, he came and saw a country that's so advanced in hospitality. Yesterday, I took him downtown. We went to have a drink together. He was very, very impressed. He didn't think he could do this in public in the streets of Amman. So it's important that you come and see things for yourself. This is part of travel today. Travel, if you want to go, just go travel for enjoying it. You want to lay on the beach, you can find many places around the world. There's only one Jordan, one experience. Come and see it. Exactly. And at the same time, the, the actual numbers of people now visiting Jordan are actually going up. It is on the rise. It's 7 7.5% increase. Of course, we're still making up for losses in the four or five years that passed. But the trend is important. The trend is on the rise. That's what matters. One of the concerns that I have is the recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling uh, about the so-called Trump administration ban on Muslims traveling to the U.S. The optics of that are so intense overseas. Everywhere I go, this is not particular to Jordan, it could be any country outside the United States, the conversation inevitably and invariably goes in that direction as to, is the United States open, welcoming, warm, hospitable? And 
yesterday I was talking to a woman who's, who's, who lives over here in the region, whose kids go to school here, two daughters, 8 and 12, and they love Disneyland. And she said to them, should we go to Disney this year? And their response was, we don't want to go to a country where, where they ban people. That's true. And these are kids who are eight years old making those decisions. So what does that do for the region? I would, I would assume it might actually help you because if people aren't coming to the U.S., that means what would have been their return tickets are now the outbound tickets for Americans who can fly more cheaply because of all the excess capacity that's created because people aren't coming to the U.S. You're absolutely right. The problem is an American problem. You know, the losses that Americans have experienced in the last few months were tremendous. Give me an example. I am told that in the last three weeks only, less than a month, there is more than $500 million lost in terms of visitors. Why is that? The messages that are coming out of the States are messages that you're not welcomed, whether you're a Muslim or not a Muslim. You know, I don't know if you've heard of this, but a former for, uh, prime minister of Norway was detained in, in one of the airports in, in the United States. I'm not sure which one it is. Simply because he had a, an Iranian stamp on his passport when he was still operating there. Now, there's nothing that says that you can't visit the States without an Iranian stamp. I mean, had he known that, he would have taken other measures or other precautions. But the fact that he was detained, he's an ex for prime minister tells you how what's the attitude and how is the outlook of Americans being in charge of immigration and receiving people when you come to the airport. My, my son was going to the States now to attend a wedding to a friend of his. He arrived yesterday. Honestly, I was worried until he landed and he went in there. I didn't want him to go, but he wanted to go because of his friend. You never know what will happen. So the losses are American losses. They're not losses for us. And it's a lesson that we should learn from others. You know, you can never, ever maintain a policy like this forever. Actually, if you come to think about it, Peter, whose interest are we serving here? Whose agenda are we serving? If we start creating travel bans and building walls after every incident that happens anywhere around the world, that's exactly what the terrorist wants us to do. They want us to stop traveling. They want us to stop interacting with each other. That's their agenda. And without knowing, we're serving their agenda. Or knowingly, but unintentionally, we're serving their agenda. So and when we talk about the reason for this conference, resilience through tourism, we're not doing a pretty good job in the U.S. now, are we? No, you're not, unfortunately. Not when it comes to travel and tourism, no. And the message, once that message gets out, it's hard to put it back in the, in, in the jar. You know, it, 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 once that, that, that image of, let's say, a former prime minister of Norway being detained at a U.S. border gets out there, you lose not one passenger, you lose many. That's right. You know, the problem is only, not only that, it's not just the image. It's how are the people that are in charge of immigration facilitating travel at the borders, how are they being trained and what's their state of mind? problem is once people get used to becoming a bit tough and a little bit unwelcoming, it's difficult to change it, even if administration changes, even if policy changes. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am the 
We've been talking with the former Secretary General of the United Nations World Tourism Organization, Dr. Talib Rafai. Doctor, where do you see this as a solution? We've just talked about the U.S. Supreme Court ruling that basically upholds the Trump administration modified Muslim travel ban. I don't even care if you call it modified. The fact that those words are there, Muslim travel ban, sends a chilling message around the world. So how do you recover from that? Well, you have to be very brave, very aggressive in this reversal. You know, the, the principle here is not just being a Muslim and discriminatory act against Muslims or against any group of people. That's the principle matter. The point is, we can never, ever build a travel policy based on group identification. In other words, you can't say even Chinese are banned or, or Indians are banned. Who in China is banned? I mean, it's okay. It's legitimate to be a bit strict about who enters your country. Well, you want you want good security, but you can't paint with such a broad brush that you include everybody in, in, Absolutely. in, a, in a policy decision. What I'm trying to say is an individual decision, one by one, because any generalization policy is going to end up hurting you, hurting your image, and it will create a burden that takes a lot of time to recover from. Well, you know, it's interesting. We live in a world of globalization. You know, I could be in this Fairmont Hotel... In Cleveland. That's and I right. w- look around. With the exception of the pictures that you have of certain iconic Jordanian monuments, I could be anywhere. That's right. I could be talking to you in Wyoming. I could be talking to you in Kazakhstan or Kazakhstan. The point is, you can't just say because of that, all people from Kazakhstan are banned because I know a lot of people who married people from Kazakhstan who are Belgian or who are, you know, German or who are American. And all of a sudden you're selectively not doing that. You're doing it across the board. That's the danger. You can say Peter Greenberg, you can say Talib Rifai are banned, but you can't say that your whole nation or my whole nation is banned. That is anti-principle and it's anti the business logic as well. Well, it's every, it's everything anti what you've worked for all those years at the United Nations. Absolutely, absolutely. So what happens now? Because the United States is, is currently, and I'm not alone in this, I mean, we see it every day, isolating itself from its foreign policy. It's isolating itself from its allies. It's isolating itself from its, tra- from its trade partners. When you do all that, travel and tourism has to take a hit big time. That is true. The good part, however, is the following. In spite of all what you're saying, in spite of all the actions that this current administration is doing, Americans are very much welcomed and accepted by the rest of the world. You still have a positive image around the world. It takes a lot much more than than this administration to damage it or ruin it. I got an idea. Yes. Want to hear my idea? There should be a marketing campaign from every country that is either predominantly Muslim, or allies itself in spirit with those countries, saying, hey, we may not be able to come see you. Why don't you come see us? Exactly. You're absolutely right. My advice was to many countries that were put on the ban list to say my response to you is, Americans are welcomed. I mean, they should You're be You're banning us, we're welcoming you. Exactly. You know, one of the problems, Peter, is... You know how you know the percentage of Americans that don't even own a passport? Oh, listen, this is my topic A on almost every show. It's exactly. terrible. Exactly. That shows you how much there is a sense of isolation. And don't tell me that America is big enough and there's diverse enough that people don't need to go. You need to go. Of you need to travel. And even those that have passports, mainly they travel to Canada or the Caribbean at best, which is really not an, enough exposure. Well, the real problem is... My fellow Americans, uh, here I am painting with a broad brush, but I'll say many of my fellow Americans, it's about their comfort zone. 
they, you know, their idea of a foreign trip is going to a Caribbean island and going to TGI Fridays or Kentucky Fried Chicken and thinking they've had an authentic experience. They haven't. Yes, but it's, why is this happening? Because they don't know better. If they try the other side of travel, try the real experience, they would know what they're missing. They will. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens because my guess is the damage that's being done, uh, and I'm not making a political statement here, I'm making it just an economic statement, but the damage that's being done by this U.S. Supreme Court decision, which will probably have a, I mean, a, a negligent effect on the real strength of American border security, will have a real effect on Americans' bottom line in terms of their tourism revenues. Absolutely. Now, one cannot attack a Supreme Court. The Supreme Court makes its judgment based on legal, legal findings. But an administration is motivated politically to do that. And that's where the blame should go to. I mean, you spent almost half of your career trying to convince heads of state and government leaders about the power and importance on so many different levels of travel and tourism. And this looks to me, not on your watch, but it looks to me like a massive failure of understanding. That's true. What we try to do is convince many leaders that visas must be looked at. Electronic visas, visas upon arrival, should be encouraged. Now, in the United States, that's a different story. The difference here is that these countries that I've been trying to advise and encourage to do so, many of which listen to us. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio with no particular place to go. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. 20 years ago, I was in Amman. I was then doing a show for the Travel Channel called Travel Daily. Uh, we were here shooting a piece. We needed a helicopter. Couldn't find a helicopter. So everybody said, if you want to find a helicopter, you got to go see the Minister of Tourism. The Minister of Tourism was Akla Biltaji, who is sitting right across from me right now. And I went to see him, and he said, well, I don't have a helicopter, but I know somebody who does, and you should go see him. And I said, who's that? He said, it's the prince. He commands special forces. So I went to see the prince, who commands special forces, and he gave me two helicopters. And we shot the show. He and I became friends. We went to dinner, and I told him I had an idea that nobody understood Jordan. People were afraid of Jordan. Uh, this was 1998, 1999. I said, you know, we should do a show here where you're my tour guide. He said, I love that idea. We should do that. And then something unexpected happened. His father, King Hussein, was dying. The kingdom was supposed to be given to his uncle, the crown prince. And on his deathbed, King Hussein said to his son, no, it's going to be you. And he became king. And guess what? He kept his promise. And we came over, and what started almost 17 years ago still continues today, but the very first royal tour was done with His Majesty King Abdullah II, and the man responsible for that is sitting across from me right now, Akla Biltaji. I'm so glad to see you. 
Uh, come on, Peter, you're giving me a lot more credit than I deserve. No, uh, you made it happen. Uh, I made it happen, but, uh, uh, you know, we managed to get you uh, in this part of the world, and His Majesty was so, so happy later on in the in the years when he took office, and you uh, picked up the acquaintance, and uh, you became his uh, confidant. <laughs> uh, at a time when, uh, you know, uh, uh, security and protocol and all, and he said, drop everything, Peter can do anything he wants. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because of you and because of him that we continue that franchise to this day. We've done eight of them and doing many, many more. But it all started right here uh, 20 years ago, right here in Amman, Jordan. Uh, you've gone on to do many things. You were uh, basically running the development in Aqaba. Then you became the mayor of Amman. Now you're back in the private sector, but everybody knows you as the godfather of tourism. You are the dean. You are the mentor. And so how appropriate for you to be here at the Resilience Through Tourism Summit in Amman, uh, basically talking about what everybody's talking about now, and that is how do you survive? And of course, more importantly, how do you succeed uh, in travel and tourism in a region of the world where most people think it's impossible to do that? I guess I stayed resilient. <laughs> uh, you know what? Uh, the, the Minister of Tourism of Jamaica, Dr. Bartlett, uh, said something very important this morning in uh, one of the sessions about uh, the authenticity and the credibility of the product and the destination. When you have one like, like Jordan, the, the land of the, uh, the sunrise of the three monotheistic religions, uh, with the antiquities, with the uh, heritage, uh, with with history that goes with it, you 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 don't go wrong. You just have to maintain it, and and make it available to the whole world. Nate Kung Hussein taught us one thing: heritage is for mankind, not for a man, not for us as Jordanian, but for the mankind. And we are honored to be the custodians. Uh, think of those beautiful words, and, and we have kept his word uh, to, to maintain the, the sites and be their custodians. So that's how it survived. That's how it has become uh, so resilient and, and still uh, going on. And uh, the numbers and, and figures of uh, 2018 are uh, very so good. far are very, very good, uh, Peter. Uh, very promising, and uh, we're seeing the uh, folks from the U.S. are coming back. Royal Jordanian flights are full. Uh, Delta in 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 uh, Tel Aviv and uh, extending flights to uh, uh, passengers to crossing the the bridge and and be here as well. Uh, Petra is warming with 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 uh, uh, tourists. Uh, the cruisers uh, ship cruising uh, business is back to normal. Listen, earlier excuse me, last year I actually um, got on a ship in in Athens. We actually sailed through the Suez Canal and ended in Aqaba. We sailed into Aqaba. The uh, warm waters, as it's, it's called, the cruise through the warm waters of the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba. I think it's safe to say that and this hasn't changed. You can't change the map that much. Jordan still exists in a pretty tough neighborhood. Um, who are your neighbors? Iraq, Syria. You know, it's 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 tough to to for for American audience that is by definition geographically ignorant. Uh, they can't find um, you know they can't find Atlanta on the map. How are they going to find Amman? Uh, how do you let them know that you can come here, you can have this experience, you are a crossroads of three religions. Uh, there are so many things that intersect here. 
uh, and it's still here. Well, it is still here and it will continue to be here uh, uh, with uh, the, the approach uh, that His uh, Majesty and the government and the people of Jordan are taking, uh, not uh, being uh, non-aligned. On the contrary, we're very much uh, for peace. Uh, we're the uh, second country in the world to support the peacekeeping force. Uh, the Blue Berets are all over the world uh, carrying the Jordanian uh, flag. So we, we are major players. And that's how we became known to the world. And uh, Amman and Jordan will be the uh, launching pad for the construction of the, of the Fertile Crescent or the Levant of Syria and Iraq. And hopefully we will also get a, a chance on the uh, Palestine and Israel when when they settled their uh, disputes. And, well, uh, you know, you say, will I get a chance? Historically, those deals are always brokered through King Hussein. Those yes. deals are always brokered right here through Jordan. That's right. And, you know, whenever there was a conflict, uh, uh, they resorted to King Hussein to be the mediator. And, and I, I believe that we were still the uh, mediators in, in all of this because we have the, we, that's our role. Our role is to, to be as positively neutral to all the conflicts in the air. We have not taken sides. We, we have uh, uh, lubricated the, the process every now and then. You remember the late King Hussein came out of the hospital. To go to uh, Camp David. To go to Camp David. And uh, now His Majesty is in the United States, and I'm sure uh, His Majesty and President Trump and the administration must have uh, given the area uh, a deep uh, look and thought of, of the future, what is going to happen here in the future. So uh, I'm, I'm confident, Peter, that uh, Jordan will continue to, the, to play that positive role in the reconstruction of Iraq, uh, Syria, uh, and the region at large. At the same time, uh, I said this earlier in the show, but it bears repeating, the fourth largest city in Jordan is Syrian refugees right now. <laughs> well, uh, half a million uh, refugees are in Amman. Uh, so out of the five million people of Amman, uh, actually 436,000 registered. So you can you can. Uh, but there are more that. than that in Jordan. Yeah. Oh, 1.3 million in yeah. Jordan. Uh, but the, the way we look at them, uh, Peter, is that they are our, our guests. Uh, they are here temporarily. They, you know, they were just waiting for the day when things settle and they go back. It's only across the border. And in an hour, two hours, and three hours max, uh, they could get back to their uh, home and, and uh, villages and towns. I guess the beauty is also the curse here because the distances are so short. You know, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, 40 minutes away from here, you're in Israel. 40 minutes away from here, you're in Beirut. 40 minutes away from here by plane, you're in Cairo. I mean, it's that short. And again, uh, as I told you, the, this is the land of the, th the sunrise of faith. So we at least have to uh, get some uh, some positive <laughs> vibes out of that. Well, the positive vibes are, you know, even when your tourism was, was really in bad shape, uh, religious tourism was very strong. Always. You know, uh, wellness tourism, uh, Peter and I, you're, you're uh, the master in, in defining that, was always health, faith, and youth. You can't go wrong if you... Uh, uh, concentrate on these three areas of, of uh, tourism. The faith, the religious tourism, youth. Look at the World Cup now. Look at Moscow. Moscow is, you know, is swarming with th hundreds of thousands of people. Other uh, cities in the, in the, in the, uh, in the Federation, uh, Russian Federation, are enjoying the, the hundreds of thousands of people for the World Cup. So youth movement, not a single tournament anywhere in the world was canceled because of a strike or a, 
out of crisis. Well, you know and why? They wouldn't think of doing that for the World Cup. Well, uh, governments would fail if they if they messed around with the World ab- Cup. Absolutely. But what I'm trying to say is that youth tourism, health tourism, faith tourism will will always uh, sustain. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. The Peter Greenberg Worldwide phone lines are open now. So call us at 1-888-887-3837. That's 1-888-88-PETER. Once again, here's your host, Peter Greenberg. 33 minutes after the hour, Peter Greenberg here with you from the Fairmont Hotel in Amman, Jordan. Taking your calls at 888-887-3837. That's 888-88-PETER. If you can't get through on the phones, you know the drill. You email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, Question or problem, we'll solve it right here on the air. In fact, let's do it right now. Here's one from Nancy Prophet, who writes, uh, I love seeing your stories about how to travel better and have heard you speak about shipping luggage instead of dragging suitcases through airports. Yeah, that's my mantra, believe it or not. You know what I always say. There are only two kinds of airline bags, carry-on and lost. She says, I'm traveling from Phoenix to Boston in September. I have not traveled outside of Arizona for many years. Well, guess what? You don't need a visa to get to Boston, so this is a good thing. Because of this, I want my experience to be an enjoyable one. I would like to ask what company you've used and were you happy with the entire experience? Well, here's the good news. You know, number one, you're going to be traveling to, to Boston in September. Not tomorrow. You have, you have advance notice. Number two, you probably know what you're going to take. Now, I'm not telling you to start packing now. But I will tell you about five days before you're ready to go, that's when you can use any one of 17 different courier services. I use FedEx, but you can also use UPS or any of the other 15. And... You send it via one of those services, either on three-day express or three-day express discount, or even on ground, and you're sending it to where you're going, either a friend's house, a hotel, a resort, whatever. You don't have to put it in a box. They actually attach a special wrapper to the handle of your suitcase. And for about $25 more than what the airlines want to charge you for losing your bag, you just save two and a half hours of your life. Because you're not schlepping it to the airport. You're not waiting in line at the check-in counter. You're not waiting in line to put it into the TSA area. And worse against worse, of course, you're not at that baggage conveyor belt with your eyes you know, focused on, on that conveyor belt, hoping against hope that your bag actually was on the flight with you, losing another 45 minutes, and then having to stand in a long line with everybody else with their bags to get the heck out of the airport. That's what you're going to do. And on the return home, you do not need your bags back overnight with your dirty laundry. You send it back three days in advance as well. Uh, no schlepping. The only thing you have to do is make two phone calls. That's it. One, obviously, to call in the order for FedEx, uh, or you can take it to a FedEx location, but they'll come to your house. Uh, and two, you, you'll get a waybill number when you when they'll, they'll give you the receipt. And all you need to do is to call the hotel where you're going or call your friend's house, whatever. Give them the waybill number to make sure they can track it. And if you're already pre-registered at the hotel, here's another piece of good news. There's a 90% chance the bag will be waiting for you already in your room. How much time did you save? How much schlepping did you avoid? That's the way to go. Now, you can't do this on a Sunday because FedEx doesn't work that day, but, and, and you, want, you don't want to pay extra on a Saturday. But you have enough advance notice during the week to send it three days in advance. And you'll save money 
And most importantly, you'll save angst and stress. Uh, here's one uh, from uh, Douglas Lee in Honolulu, Hawaii. I'll be flying soon, and I noticed there's a three-month trial currently available for Clear. I was considering signing up to use it for this trip and then canceling at the end of three months. I don't have any other flights planned right now in the next three months, so I'd only be using it for this one flight. Only on the first leg, too, as my return flight is from a non-clear airport. Do you think it's worth it? Well, you already sound like you've already scammed the system. So, uh, you know, if you're only going to sample it once and then decide not to use it, I suppose you could play the game and beat these guys at their own rules, playing by their own rules. Um, So check it out. But here's the thing. If you're not already enrolled in PreCheck and you want to try Clear and you don't want to spend money for it and it's a three-month, you know, uh, like a free trial, go for it. Do me a favor. Then email me, peter at petergreenberg.com, and tell me if you liked it. I'd love to know it. I'm not a member of Clear right now. I don't see the reason for it for me, but a lot of other people do in other airports. But tell me about it. I'd love to hear how your experience went. Uh, Here's one, and this one drives me nuts. This one is from Ellie Scannell in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, Peter, my wife and I are going to Japan in November, so it sounds like you're flying on Delta. Um, our flight is a layover in Minneapolis, St. Paul, that is only 37 minutes long before our flight to Japan leaves. Is this enough time? If not, what should we do? <laughs> Here's the answer. You're moving to Minneapolis. You just don't know it yet. Uh, no, 37 minutes is a suicidal connection at any airport, especially if you're connecting between a domestic and an international flight, which means, of course, you're going to have luggage. And the last thing you want to do is to arrive in Japan and have your luggage play catch-up with you all across Asia. Not a good idea. You have enough time. You're not flying there till November. Call the airline. In this case, I would almost guarantee you're flying Delta. Um, and say to them, you and I both know 37 minutes is a, it, it may sound like a legal connecting time, Let's face it, it's a suicidal connecting time. Can you please put me on an earlier flight to Minneapolis? Uh, or, if, if, if things are even worse, fly in the night before and stay at an airport hotel. The last thing you want to do is to race to the airport for a 37-minute connecting time, because even if you make the flight, what are the guarantees your bags are? Uh, they're all, there's too many things that can go wrong. I, I, look, I don't care that they come tell me I have a 47-minute connect or an hour and three minutes. My rule of thumb is 90 minutes on, on, on connect times on domestic flights, and at certain airports around the world, it's, it's a lot worse than that. For example, in London, if you look at the rules, they'll tell you a legal connecting time is three hours, so that if you're flying New York to London, you want to connect, let's say, where I am now to Oman, you know, it's a three-hour connect. They're not telling you the whole truth. Oman to the border. If you, you know, a flight to Cairo is 48 minutes. Mm. Uh, I mean, uh, Lebanon is the same. Yeah, that is great. I mean, I've been all over. So, I mean, it depends, you know, if you're interested in religious tourism, you can come here, you can get over to Jerusalem and Israel very easily. If you're interested in great beaches, you can get over to Sharm el-Sheikh up from Aqaba in about 40 minutes. You can get to Beirut very, very easily. Dubai is two and a half hours away. So actually, it's a great launching point. I'll tell you a funny story. Many years ago, I brought brought a group of about 25 of my friends. Uh, They were all scared to death to come here. (laughs) And then I pulled off the trifecta. We had breakfast in Amman, lunch in Jerusalem, and dinner in Beirut on the same day. That's pretty impressive. And yeah, we did I it. Haven't, I haven't heard of that before. I mean, that's, that's we, No, we bad. did it. And, and the most amazing part about that is uh, when they got to Jordan, they were scared. Then they didn't want to leave. Right, uh, yeah. And, and when they got to Beirut, they were walk, walking off the plane as hostages, and then they extended their trip. <laughs> uh, it, was in, it was in Jerusalem where they were, they were nervous. Really? Which, which I never expected at all. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I knew what would happen in Jordan. 
I knew what would happen in Beirut. I just gave, you know, I, t I took Israel for granted at that point. And yet of all the places we were, the only place they felt a little nervous because they saw such a, an outward sign of, of military yeah. was in Israel. Yeah. I guess it depends what's also when you went. Yeah. Um, last time I went, it was, it was great. It was fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've got friends back home. Last time I, I went back home, I said, you know, I'm on my way back to Jordan. And they said, well, bring a flak jacket with you. And I remember saying to them, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, but I do understand it. You know, it, if, if you go home and you put the TV on, um, it, the Middle East is, is seen as very homogenous. Every country looks the same. Whereas, whereas, in fact, Jordan is very different to Egypt, very different to, to Beirut, very different to Dubai. I mean, in the Jordan Valley, you've got forests. Yeah, and that's another thing. I People mean, don't get that. that. No, I mean, even now, you know, you can you can leave Amman and Ajlun is incredibly lush. It's an hour and a half away. You have beautiful log cabins. It's basically a forest reserve. The Jordan Valley is stunningly beautiful. And Dana, the reserve. Dana Reserve is amazing. Uh, even some of the waterfalls by the Dead Sea. Well, for me, uh, the rap there were rapids in Wadi Mujib. Yeah. At yeah. certain times of the year, you better know what you're doing. This is class five time. That's right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah, Wadi Mujib's great. I don't know how some of the young people jump off that cliff. Oh, um, I could Nothing it. happens to I them. No, but. when I actually, we did the royal tour here with, with the, His Majesty. He jumped off the cliff. His security guys went nuts. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. But um, you can do it. Yeah, uh, and it is great. I said, I'm you're the um, king. You go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's little secrets as well. Just opposite Mujib, there's some... There's some, some very tiny Dead Sea chalets for like $50 a night. And it's literally a little chalet a couple of meters up from the Dead Sea. So you wake up in the morning and you just see the Dead Sea in the mountains ahead of you, literally on the plateau of the Dead right. Sea. Stunning. And then, of course, the Red Sea and diving. I mean, in Nagaba, they sank an old ship down there, which is an amazing reef dive now. Unofficial, of course, but it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's, I've got a friend at the office who goes up there every week. I'm very jealous. Um, I think that's something that I probably should check out more. And for people here who may not remember this, Israel and Jordan have had a peace treaty for a long time. Uh, you could do border crossings down in Aqaba to Eilat and across the Alady Bridge, uh, not far from where we are right now, uh, in, into Israel. It's easy. Yeah, it is easy. I think it's it's very easy if you're an, an expat and a tourist. It's very easy if you're interested in religious tourism. Um, and you know, as I said, I, I was blown away when I went to Jerusalem. Actually, I'd never been. Of course, um, I thought it was but stunning. you have it all here. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The charge for looking at this pamphlet is three dollars. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is four dollars. Everywhere I go, I like to talk to the expats, the Americans who are figuring out a way to live abroad and having a great time. And my next guest is exactly that. She's from, well, she's from, can I say Bend, Oregon? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Uh, that's how she got here through Southern California. It's a long, circuitous route, but she's here to Amman <laughs> and writing about it. Katrina Gregory, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. Uh, you came here because your husband took a job? Yep. So you'd never been to Jordan before? Not, never been to the Middle East before. So this is a brave new world. Yeah, completely. But you immersed quickly. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, no I'm Ara a traveler. No so. Arabic, though? Uh, a I little took, bit? No, I didn't speak any Arabic when I came. I speak a little bit now. Enough to get by. 
I know enough to say shokron, yella, and uh, uh-huh. right, habibi, and, and habibi, of habibti. course. Right. <laughs> Although I always say to people when they, if I say to them eight o'clock tomorrow, and they go inshallah, I say no, no inshallah, eight o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's part of the culture here it for is. sure. But for an American here, or an American listening to the show, listening to you, right? Do you have any fear of being here? None. I actually feel safer here than some of the big capitals, you know, in Europe and other places. But when you came over here, I bet a lot of your friends said, you're doing what? Exactly. Even some fairly well-traveled friends were like, is it safe? My family was all, you know, a little scared. Have they come to visit since? I got my mother to come visit. Yeah. And did she love it? She adored it, especially the Dead Sea, because it's the Dead Sea. And did, she go, did she go in? She did, yeah. And did she wash off thoroughly when she came out? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> what are the things that are the most surprising things? Let's use your mother as an example. What are the most surprising things to people who come here for the first time? The most surprising thing, I think what we just spoke about, which is that it's really safe, um, that there is, as an American here, you are welcomed with open arms. Um, I have to admit, occasionally when traveling, I have the tendency to want to say I'm Canadian in some countries because you get a little bit, right. sometimes you just don't want to have that conversation. Right, but here it's okay. Here, if even if they don't speak Arabic, I mean, even if they don't speak English, um, an Arabic speaker will say, America good, America good with thumbs up, you know? Um, so that's one of the things, super friendly, um, very welcoming to Americans. Um, there is sort of a fledgling food, food scene here, which is sort of interesting. Yeah. Um, I love the bakeries here. Yeah. Come on. The bakeries here. Yeah. Whether you, and, you know, a lot of bakeries, you got to go at 11 o'clock at night. No, you go to the baker here at 9 in the morning. It's, they're, they're, they're working hard, and the, and, the, and the warm bread's coming out. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. It's the Great best. food scene, for sure. But, of course, the iconic sites like Petra, mm-hmm. right? I'm sure you went right away. You had to go. But Jordan is so much more than Petra. Absolutely. There are... Um, Although I will say, if you're going to do Petra, you do it, I mean, the way I like to do it, go down in the, in the late afternoon, overnight, go there at night when they light it up, yeah. go down that gorge. Every once in a while, they'll even have an opera singer inside the, uh, the treasury building. It's, it's an emotional experience. It really, it is. Any time of day, it, right. Petra but is then, stunning. But then, of course, like any world monument, get up at four in the morning, I don't care what your friends say, drag them out of bed, and be there before the sun comes up. And go down that gorge because the light changes yes. as it hits that stone and the rock formations. And then, of course, the treasury building. You'll never forget that. No, absolutely not. I, I do the same thing. Whenever people come to visit, there's no... You stay overnight the night before and you get up at the crack of dawn. <laughs> like, it's just the best way to experience the treasury. But that's that's Petra. Yes. Were the, what were the surprises for you elsewhere in Jordan? Sure. Um there's, of course, Jarosh, Wadi Rum, um, Um Kais. So these are still some of the... Um Kais is the castle, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, castle up north. It's like the furthest, almost the furthest north you can go in the country. Um, there are so many... They're active dig sites here. I mean, they're currently excavating these sort of like ancient things, monuments. Um, and you can get up close and personal, which is one of the things that people are really surprised about. You can climb over... Roman fallen Roman columns you know you can there's no rope generally keeping you from these amazing antiquities even at the citadel yeah totally you can climb all over it and you know if you take a look at world heritage sites around the globe the sad part about it is so many of them are not either preserved or presented in a proper way uh, they're not well respected they're hidden they're named but the countries that are that where they're hosted 
don't do a good job preserving them, here they do. Yeah, they do. What's Culture Trip? It's a travel site. Just about any city you visit in the world, there is loads of content about that city, whether you want to know about places to work out or the things that you can't miss or uh, the photographers who are doing the most amazing work from that country. And it gets you involved quite away. I mean, right away. Yeah, absolutely. So what are the things that, you know, that are not just Petra that you can do here in Jordan? There are are more things than I would have imagined. I mean, you can go four by four through a royal botanical reserve, you know. Um, you can, this is one's, this one's a little more obvious, but camp under the stars in, in a Bedouin tent at Wadi Rum. No, but you need to do that. You absolutely have to. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a bucket list sort of And thing. by the way, it's not one of those Disneyland experiences where everything's organized on a tour bus. You could just go out there and do it. Yeah. You know, and, and, and not be with 85 other people yeah. and still have a great time. For sure. And then, of course, the Dead Sea. Like, you've got to go. You've got to float in the Dead Sea. You've got to try the Dead Sea mud. There are tiny little, not even tiny, but castles sort of scattered around the country that aren't even particularly well marked that you can go stroll through. I mean, there are reserves like Dana and uh, Wadi Mujib. And by the way, Wadi Mujib has rapids. Yeah, they, you could actually do some whitewater rafting there. Yeah, it's well, it's it's a little narrow, I think, for is, for a boat. You, no, but, but you do it by yourself. Yeah, yeah. you do it like your You're body literally going through it. Yeah, you are literally Absolutely. sliding down these rocks through this narrow chasm. It's like canyoning, basically. And when people it's think of Jordan, they don't think of waterfalls. No, or forest, really, yeah. right? Like there's so many. We have, um, I mean, Amman is at elevation an elevation of over three thousand feet. So, um, as you can imagine, like with that comes cooler temperatures and some forested areas. There's greenery, all kinds of trees. People are really surprised by that, like how different the um, topography of this country is, even though it's small. How soon after you got here were you doing shisha? (laughs) (laughs) You know what? The hubbly bubbly. I have a confession to make. I don't smoke shisha. You know what? I don't either, but I've done it. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you have to do hubbly bubbly at least once. I suppose you should. You know, you just pointed out failing in my expatness. You know, no, you're just one of the Bend, Oregon purists. <laughs> well, not quite. I have, I have my vices. Oh, we won't get there. <laughs> no, let's not. But bottom line is, Amman is a city that when I first came here closed up at night. Now it doesn't. No. I mean, you got a big restaurant scene here. You yeah, and we have bars. One of the things that I get asked frequently. Sort of, sort of right after, is it safe? Is um, can you drink there? I'm like, yeah, of course you can. There are liquor stores, there are bars, there are restaurants with bars. You know, um, the question I'm, I'm asked by all of my female friends is dress. Yeah, do I have to wear a headscarf? That's the other question I get all the time. And it is, I always say no, of course you don't. Um, it would be a little weird for you to wear a headscarf here if it wasn't based on your personal conviction. Um, not every Muslim woman chooses to wear a headscarf. There may be women in the same friend group. Some choose to wear a hijab, some choose not to, maybe even in the same family. It's a very personal choice, and um, I sense very little judgment about the choices between women, which I think is really lovely, and it tells you a little bit about the culture and what it's like to visit here. Like, there's no judgment. Wear what you want to wear, do what you want to do. Although you do want to exercise respect for religion, and if you're going to go into a mosque or any religious site for ladies, no short sleeve shirts, you know, cover yourself, not your face, but just... Cover yourself. In general, I say, even though I say there are no rules, I err on the side of covering. Cover yourself, be respectful. Yeah, be respectful. You don't have to cover your head. Um, You can wear open-toed shoes if you want, but I, I highly recommend if you're going outside of the 
expat areas or the really densely tourist areas, wear some flowy long pants, a long dress, yeah, and cover cover your arms. And by the way, Amman is a very walkable city. You know, I mean, for me, I get to walk around, especially downtown. Oh, downtown for yeah. sure. Yeah. 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 Their sidewalks are a little optional sometimes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, that's, part of the, that's part of the adventure. Right? It is. Just bring good shoes with good tread. <laughs> and, and you'll be climbing a little bit too. Yeah. Because it's a city on seven hills, right? Now let's talk about the food here because I go back, well, to 1978 when I first came. Wow. One of my best Chinese f- meals was in Amman. Like who knew? Mm-hmm. Right, and they still have great Chinese restaurants here. Yeah, they do. Absolutely. I mean, there's one. I mean, there's a Chinese restaurant at the Four Seasons. It's unbelievable. I mean, you want sushi, you can have. You got anything you want, right? Yeah, yeah, anything you want here. There's all kinds of international restaurants. Um, One of my favorites is an Italian restaurant that's chef owned. Um, What's it called? It is called Milagrano. That's the proper Italian pronunciation, right? Milagrano, which I think means pomegranate. But it is owned by a couple. Um, I think he is Italian, and it is. Is one of the best food experiences I've had ever. Close, close, yeah. Good. I mean, close for, is good for Amman, it's amazing. I mean, everything is handmade there. The chef will even sort of peek out of the kitchen to sort of see how people are doing, you know. And the, his wife runs the front of house. It's great. It's one of my favorites. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Plus.